Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance or First Talk Compliance on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on Google or Facebook. And don't forget to follow us on social media or subscribe on YouTube at First HCC or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance or hashtag First Talk Compliance. On today's episode, we are speaking with Stephen Bittinger, a healthcare reimbursement partner at K&L Gates, about the topic of the biggest recent healthcare scams and how to avoid being a target going forward. We will be learning the mechanics of some of the largest recent healthcare fraud scams, how many providers became victims in these scams, and how to avoid these types of risks in the future. We will study the mechanics of healthcare fraud scams and the impact on providers caught in them. Discover how to identify healthcare fraud scams and discuss resources for providers to educate themselves and learn from other providers' mistakes on how to avoid healthcare fraud scams and decrease risk to revenue cycle. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today on First Talk Compliance. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's all mine. I appreciate it. So can you tell me why are you a healthcare reimbursement attorney presenting about fraud schemes rather than perhaps a criminal defense attorney? Well, that is a great question. And, you know, I, there's a lot of different ways to explain it, but sometimes you have to look at the mess and then reconstruct what created it to figure out how to prevent those problems in the future. And so I, I, I'm a, kind of like an engineer with reimbursement. I deal with very small, tight calculations and precise matters. And so I try my best to navigate all of the complex regulatory and legal scheme of the healthcare revenue cycle. And I, I then have to advise my clients on how to avoid very significant pitfalls. And so practicing, you know, the art of looking at the mess and then evaluating, you know, a year or two back and and how do you prevent those type of issues uh, has really helped me defend fraud, waste and abuse. Um, A lot of times, like the auditors that are looking for these types of fraud schemes, you know, are alleging fraud but like 95% of them turn out to be negligence, you know, not intentional mistakes, um, just billing errors or mistakes. And it helps me understand how to defend them and correct problems before they really get out of hand. Well, can you tell me what are some recent healthcare fraud schemes you have seen recently? Well, I'll tell you that there have been some really significant ones, but I, I'll pick three to talk about today. Um, if you read any of the news, um, th- there was one last year called Operation Brace Yourself, where the healthcare joint task uh, force 
worked together all over the country, and it was a billion-dollar durable medical equipment scheme. And, and the way it worked is that you know, telemarketing companies lured a lot of elderly and disabled people onto the phone with a couple questions and said, hey, we, we might be able to get you a free brace if you answer a few questions. And they would answer a few questions, and if the, if the, if the patient was willing to provide some of their information that would be needed to bill, uh, they would get a quote-unquote doctor on the line. Sometimes it was a doctor, sometimes it wasn't, and they would gather enough you know, information within a three- to five-minute conversation to be able to bill a claim. And then what happened after that is that a lot of those claims ran all over the country to like 130 different DME companies, and 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 many of them innocently sent and and billed for you know claims that they did not know were part. Now they should have had better compliance to know whether it was a bad claim or not. And some of them did it on purpose and took kickback. But but a lot of patients all of a sudden started getting two, three, six pieces of really expensive bracing equipment from Medicare that they didn't want. Um, and it, it cost the taxpayers probably close to a billion dollars. So that was that was one really significant one. Um, another one that's probably really big that a lot of people may not have heard of because of the opioid crisis, there's lots of states and counties and municipalities suing pharmaceutical companies. But there was a, 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 case, a fraud scheme with an opioid spray, which was actually a fentanyl-based spray meant for cancer patients with severe pain. This company and its executives were doing the old wine and dine for doctors because this spray would pay $19,000 a month, so extraordinarily expensive. And, oh. and the reason this case is important is that the government prosecuted the executives and the founders of the company criminally. It was the first case where there's been criminal charges prosecuted successfully against you know, a pharmaceutical manufacturer and their rep, not just civil. And then you know, probably another really interesting one from my perspective on the legal side is the Forest Park Medical Center case, which is where a bunch of physicians got together and decided to own their own hospital. And the plan was for the hospital to stay out of network uh, from all the payers, because if you work in this arena, you know that out of network can pay more because um, you're not pressed down by the in-network rates. And then they went out and you know, paid kickbacks through quote-unquote marketing agreements to providers to refer to their hospital. And they told patients they would waive their copays and deductibles. And and the wild thing about this is that even though those are major red flags, it worked. They pocketed a huge amount of money from private payers, um, and a lot of doctors just somehow believe that providing you know education uh, in in articles or speaking was worth quote actually a percentage of their referrals, and, and they somehow thought that would not be a kickback. But the unique part about this case is that the government used a law called the Travel Act to, quote unquote, federalize state law crimes against private payers. And so these doctors who tried to avoid federal payers 
to avoid federal risk and prosecution, still got prosecuted by the federal law from a different angle. And that shows that the government is willing to use a lot of different angles to come after these fraud schemes. So what do recent fraud schemes tell you? Well, um, it it tells me two main things. Um, One, fraudsters are becoming really sophisticated. But the government is getting really good at hunting them. They are getting just as sophisticated and and cooperative among agencies and states um, to catch up with these types of schemes. And and so, you know, fraud 20, 30 years ago used to be, you know, billing for dead people. And, and, and that's not fraud anymore. Fraud now is sequencing IC, you know, ICDs, diagnosis codes with certain CPTs. And, and it, it's a real complex scheme. And honestly, I've asked myself, how do people who are so smart to put together this fraud scheme not just do it the right way and make a good living? But you know, greed is quite, quite a motivator. And, and so it, it's still a part of our lives. Well, how do providers educate themselves? Well, first and foremost, the entire medical training system, medical schools, residency programs, you know, continuing education, they've all got to be a part of it. They've all have to be more focused on compliance training. You know, I I, I can't tell you the number of clients I have who are three years out, five years out and in a terrible mess and they don't know the first thing about federal regulation of healthcare or, or the basics of healthcare restriction within their state. And, and too many providers are, are just relying on support staff or administration. They're just assuming, you know, that that person's getting it right. And, and it's their license and their career at stake. It's, it's not that, you know, that support person. When the payer is coming after the NPI that those claims were billed under. And that is their ticket to a career and a livelihood. Um, so it's really important that compliance is there from start to finish and a regular basis of continuing to improve ourselves. And then what about providers educating also their patients? How do they how can they help their patients not to be victims of healthcare fraud? Well, that is a good question and a very hard one. Because providers have never been under more time constraint because of levels of reimbursement and, you know, they've got quotas, you know, 15 minutes per patient, if that. Um, But it's hard to bring education of this nature into a clinical setting. But I, I can tell you that I think providers have got to create a culture of compliance. They have got to expect that their support staff or their system or their hospital is going to provide resources and education to patients to make them aware. Um, and whether that is a hotline or materials, uh, it, it needs to be a regular part of educating, you know, the patient population because honestly, healthcare is evolving so fast, patients aren't keeping up with this either. You know, most patients don't understand anything about telemedicine and that's how they become victims right they think someone calls them on the phone and they've heard the, the word telemedicine and they think it's okay um, but they need to understand that telemedicine is about having a better relationship with your existing providers you know 
your your PCP, your specialist, your hospital that you go to. That's it's only there to create access to trusted providers that are already taking care of you. Well, how about technology? Do you think it's hurting or helping healthcare? <laughs> that, that's a great segue there, isn't it? Um, yes. So yes. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you, technology, you've got to take a, a broad spectrum, right? Um, right. Technology has has honestly saved one of my child's lives, um, you know, and I've got six and, and technology has helped, you know, keep my kids healthy and me healthy. And, and I so I think technology is a, a huge blessing in, in medicine. Um, but it is equally being abused. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a greater tool and a greater weapon. And, and so, uh, I, I honestly, from some analyzing some of the fraud schemes, I'm applauding the government over the past year and in their oversight. And I know providers don't want to hear that, you know, they're, 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 there's too much regulation. Well, the reality is, is that, you know, there's no perfect system. Um, but we have got to all work together. Providers work with regulators to try and come up with the best collaborative efforts to keep bad actors out of the system that we all care about. And the technology is a huge part about part of that in, in both screening providers, you know, following claims data to identifying the issues that, that we need to work against. And so uh, I think I'm a technology advocate with a candid awareness of how it can be abused. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on First Healthcare Compliance or First Talk Compliance on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or on Google or Facebook. And don't forget to follow us on social media or subscribe on YouTube. My guest today is Stephen Bittinger, a healthcare reimbursement partner at KNL Gates, about the topic of the biggest recent healthcare scams and how to avoid being a target going forward. So Stephen, is there more healthcare fraud now than there was in the past? Uh, it it does. And well, I don't know if more is the right word. I think um, maybe more is being revealed to us. What, what's your what's your opinion on that? It, yeah, I, I think 30 years ago, were there plenty of providers who fudged on some claims? Yeah, probably there were. Right. Um, and so it was maybe a it was in smaller pockets. Right. And, and it wasn't as easily identifiable. But what we are more aware of now is the complexity and, and you know, huge operations through technology. Like, you know, Operation Brace Yourself was a billion dollars. I mean, a billion dollars is a lot of money and a lot of coordination. And, and so I think healthcare fraud is getting splashy and attractive to the media because um, it's big numbers and big issues. It's always existed. Maybe the sliding scale of our escalating costs of healthcare 
uh, keeps it in proportion. But I think it just is more intriguing. I mean, I think it's a lot more intriguing than, you know, it was 20 years ago. Well, I have a question, too. Is it easier to have accidental fraud because perhaps maybe there's so many more codes? Is that a possibility or no? That's a great question. And I'm going to correct a word. Accidental Mm -hmm. fraud doesn't work because fraud is okay. intentional. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes, but, right. but, th- right. but there, there is, there is exceedingly more negligence that causes overpayments. And, and, you know, that is actually my arena. So my okay. niche is defending doctors who made mistakes, not that okay. they did it intentionally. And sometimes I have to, I have to convince regulators that it was a mistake, that it wasn't intentional. Um, and then we figure out how to resolve the money issues, Mm -hmm. but yes, um, error-based payments is still our, probably our number one nemesis. So as big as the fraud numbers are, the error-based payment numbers in the healthcare system are astronomical. They dwarf Mm -hmm. the fraud numbers and that's the arena I work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I would assume probably maybe somebody has, some doctor has put some kind of code for, I don't know, years or for the, let, let's say for the past year for, let's say, $100 and they're expecting $100 over and over and over and over and over for some procedure. And the, the government says, well, no, uh, it was, you were supposed to be reimbursed only, let's say, $20. And so there's a fight back and forth between how much they were supposed to be reimbursed, right? Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. And so no, the most common scenario. I mean, if I was super simplifying it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The most, the most common scenario is what I call a policy change. Right. Okay. And unfortunately when a, when a payer changes their policy, in other words, we will or won't cover or we limit coverage different from the past. Mm hmm. And the provider doesn't stay current right. on that policy exactly. change. Yeah, the system a lot of times still pays the way it used to. Right, okay. the system isn't corrected to pay the way it, it should with the policy, so the provider just unknowingly gets overpaid. Okay, and and so that's the most common scenario. And and I'll give you an interesting statistic: is that for every fraud dollar that exists, there are mm-hmm. nine in innocent overpayments. Mm, okay. Wow. So All right. Big numbers. Yep. Oof, what a problem. Well, getting back into then fraud schemes, how do some fraud schemes continue so long without being noticed? This is a perfect segue from what we were just I know, talking I've about. Um, <laughs> that, actually, <laughs> that's right. So, unfortunately, the payers are usually to blame, and this is a payer burden because there are so many services and so many diagnoses, and and the systems are so complex. The payers have an extraordinarily difficult task of keeping their adjudication software current with all the edits, right? We change Mm -hmm. this coverage, we stop this claim from coming through, or we reduce this claim, and the payers make errors. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes they don't think like the fraudsters, right? The fraudsters 
will say, hey, well, if I put these diagnosis codes with this very expensive service and run it in this jurisdiction, I get paid. And the payer hasn't caught that claim edit yet. And so the fraudsters will just run a whole bunch of those claims through the system, get paid a lot of money before they catch it. Um, and there's a lot of really smart, very good people on the payer side working to prevent these issues, but their task is monumental and it's hard to keep up, um, particularly with, with Medicare as the largest single payer on the planet. Do you think False Claims Act whistleblowers are abusing the system? Some people think that there are people like that. Yeah. But what's your- <laughs> what is it? That's right. Depends it's, on where, what well, your perspective is, or you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, like so this, like you know, you know, what's your? What's I, your... I, I think the, I, I think the whistleblowers that draw the most ire from the public now are the serial ones, or right. exactly the the, per, the professional whistleblowers. Like exactly, most people name, most people may not realize that there are companies who are out there data mining. And, and gathering evidence to be the whistleblower. And they're, they're called serial whistleblowers. Um, and they're making a good living. I mean, they're, they're wrong a percentage of the time, but they're right enough to be making a good living. And so, you know, the government is, is I think, becoming more careful with which cases they intervene and spend taxpayer dollars to pursue. But the truth is, most whistleblowers go through a very long, arduous, painful ostrac—you know—ostracization, and it is an extremely difficult process to be a relator. You know, if you are a whistleblower as a doctor, who's going to hire you afterwards? Because everybody's got problems, and I, I've right. seen whistleblowers that have ended their careers because. They did the right thing. And so I think there's a sufficient amount of fear in the difficulty of that process that that keeps it from being abused more than it really is. But it's it's the Wild West. I mean, false claims is uh, is is big dollars and, and big guns. So. So do you think there are any parties in the healthcare system that are more to blame for the greed that motivates fraud? Well, that's a good question. There's so many hands in in the cookie jar. You know, there's people want to blame the insurance companies, right? And 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 insurance companies are still making some pretty amazing profits. Um, people want to blame the doctors and say the doctors are all greedy. Or or people, you know, want to categorize. But the truth is, you know, insurance companies are making less across the board than, than they ever have. The doctors, if you look at the cost to educate themselves and work as a doctor now, are, are not making any more than they ever have. Some are, the ones who are really entrepreneurial, but but categorically they're not. And then there's you know there's the manufacturers and, and the suppliers, the the pharmaceutical industry. I think there's a lot of third parties that are really smart that find ways to manipulate almost abuse the system for rev- for for gain but the problem is, is it's, it's kind of a universal issue 
you know, each angle, each party that's involved has got some bad actors. And, and it's a, you know, the truth is, is that we're in a system that's spiraling because there's no good way to stabilize it. And, you know, I mean, if you really understand the mechanics, unless we change this system, we're going to deplete our funding and Medicare is going to head for a horrific crash within the next 15 to 20 years. And so we've all got our work cut out for us. Well, we're almost out of time, but what are your most important recommendations for providers to protect themselves walking away from this interview? Well, to, some of my most important pieces of advice are, you know, common sense and look for red flags, right? Um, providers need to work on regularly educating themselves. I know doctors went to med school to be doctors, not lawyers, not compliance professionals. But in the heightened risk of the healthcare arena, doctors, you have got to, you know, read a fraud hotline, you know, email or OIG guidance or take continuing education. And, and you've got to stay current. You know, administrators, you have got to work really hard at, at your job and, and working at compliance. And and compliance professionals, you got to be strong and speak up and, and run the right things up the ladder to make sure that issues don't get out of hand. So, you know, for providers, it's not what you went to school for. It's not what you want to be doing, but it's a necessary part of what you are doing. And if you can learn to educate yourself, you can use that for good and prevention. You know, some of the most successful clients I have are doctors who also know a lot about compliance and a lot about business. And and so it can be very beneficial to get your arms into that process and stay educated. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Any other words of advice for, for our listeners? Uh, no, I just really appreciate this time. And uh, that if I can give any final advice is that try to dig deeper into all those splashy headlines on the news and understand the mechanics and how it might affect you. Um, you can can learn a lot by keeping your, your ear on the rail uh, because there's a lot of interesting things going on in healthcare. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. So thank you for, for joining me today on First Talk Compliance. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at KatherineShort at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.